Welcome to Failing Forward. Laura and Michelle, can you please introduce yourselves today for our audience? Hi, my name is Laura Kim, and I'm a senior consultant at the Canopy Lab. We are a small firm based out of Washington, D.C., with presence in Europe, North Africa, and soon to be in Latin America. And we provide technical advisory and monitoring and evaluation and research services to a wide variety of clients in the global development sector. And my name is Michelle Lemur. I am an affiliate consultant with the Canopy Lab, and I've held a variety of roles in gender and inclusion with Mercy Corps over the past five years or so. Thanks for having us today, Emily. Yeah, welcome. We're really excited to learn more from you today. So let's start with the first question. We ask all of our guests this. Why is it important for us to talk about failure? I think for so many reasons. A few reactions to this surfaced for both of us, so I'll kick us off. Learning and adaptation come out of failure. And I think in the development sector, we've we've all become very comfortable with acknowledging that, along with the fact that we do all fail from time to time, individuals, teams, projects, even organizations. But it can still be difficult to talk about that, especially openly or externally. So platforms or conversations like this that help some of us acknowledge this failure and what we've learned encourage others to do so and to somewhat more importantly, continue taking the sorts of risks that sometimes come with failure, but can also lead to growth and innovation. Yeah. And I 100% echo what Michelle said um, to piggyback off of her acknowledging learning and growing from failure. I feel that they are all the more important in our line of work because our ultimate goal is to uplift communities and to improve the lives of individuals. And so the ability to learn and grow from failure, it's not just a professional responsibility, it really is a moral imperative. So with that in mind, what's the context of the example you're going to be sharing today? Yeah, so at the Canopy Lab, Michelle and I have been part of a study series called Inclusion and Leadership. It was an initiative started by one of Canopy's managing partners, Holly Kruger. And through a series of primarily self-funded research, we've been trying to understand who gets which jobs in international development, why, and what are the underlying factors and structures that influence who get in and who gets to advance. And so in 2021 and 2022, we were lucky to obtain support from USAID's Feed the Future Market Systems and Partnership Activity, and this is run by DAI, to conduct two studies on the impact of COVID-19 on development professions. So the first piece, which was done in 2021, was a rapid assessment looking at how the pandemic was affecting development professionals and As a caveat, because of our resources, we specifically focused on those working in the niche space of market systems development. And then the following year, in 2022, we did sort of a second, larger piece exploring the shift in perspectives on development professionals and their careers and what this may all mean for the future diversity of the sector. So we really tried to encapsulate this thirst that we were sensing among practitioners for better work-life balance and for more intentionality around diversity, equity, and inclusion, as well as locally-led development. So those were the two studies. And then in 2023, we said, hey, what's been the impact of our work? 
And this is where things went downhill. So tell us more about that. What went wrong? So despite some early indications that the research and the findings more specifically were gaining traction, when we dug deeper through that follow-up exercise that Laura just mentioned, we found that the work had not led to any significant adoption. And when we thought about what we meant by adoption, although we weren't expecting to directly lead to actual changes around back-to-work models, we didn't really expect to see an organization change their back-to-work policy citing this Canopy Lab research. But we did hope that the data would at least inform and contribute to some of these discussions that we knew were happening across the sector, kind of at all levels within all types of organizations. So with that follow-up exercise, we were really trying to answer the question of, was the study used at all and how? And I'll say that by some metrics, this was not a failure. So for example, we estimate that we likely reached a global audience of nearly 10,000 individuals based on attendance at different events, webinars, social media outreach, peer-to-peer sharing. And we felt like that those reach numbers indicated significant interest in the research and findings And although you can never predict where that will go, we did think that that interest at least indicated the potential for further use. And we do not really have a set in stone answer on why this didn't happen. But in conducting that, the literature review for this follow-up exercise, we did learn a little bit more about what we could have done differently, which we'll speak about in a bit. You know, you have those reach numbers, you have that estimate. How do you know that it didn't lead to impact and that you didn't see change? So we had the list of all our participants from the webinars that we conducted. And so we sent out a quick survey. We talked to our advisory council and interviewed them and asked if there had been any changes. And we received zero response to the follow-up survey on the use of our research and our findings. And with the individuals we spoke to, we heard that while the findings resonated with what professionals were seeing at their organization, the study itself was not really being used in any meaningful way. And it was a disappointment because we were cautiously optimistic. We thought we had a good value proposition in our products, right? Development practitioners are hardly the subject of their own studies, and people like reading about themselves. These studies were out during COVID, and it was about COVID. We thought the read was engaging and accessible and and rich. And so this was not something that we anticipated to result in zero uptake. And as you say, it's so disheartening because on the front end, you had really good indicators, 10,000 people reached, right? A third of World Bank reports are never downloaded at all. So you definitely crossed that bar. People saying that the findings resonated, as somebody who writes a lot of reports, that's not always the case. People don't always say that. So then taking one step more and saying, and yet still not impact, still not a change, I suspect that would be true for a lot of us if we were able to invest in asking that question. Knowing what you know now, based on your learning, what would you do differently if you could do it all over again? So to answer that for ourselves, we actually looked into the evidence base about what actually leads to uptake. I mean, if you could really summarize the impact of our work, 
it would be the equivalent of, hey, that was an interesting article. Maybe I'll text it to a friend or colleague and maybe don't lose it, right? And clearly we wanted more to come out of that. We conducted some interviews with our advisory board and we really spent some time looking into the academic literature base about what are the factors that lead to uptake. And we really specifically looked at knowledge management practices. And we really settled on three main things that we could have done differently. The first was we should have been more strategic in the channels we used to communicate our work. We live in an age of abundance. So how do you build an audience? We should have leveraged existing champions and knowledge brokers with deep social capping. We did not do that. The second lesson is really about momentum and longevity. You know, oftentimes you see a new tool or guidance that's out and there's this flurry of webinars and events and whatnot, and then everything dries out. And that was the same thing for us. We had a comms plan for the first few weeks and then we just stopped. So there's definitely a lesson learned in setting consistency and a, and a cadence to our dissemination efforts. And then the third lesson, I think, is the far most interesting one. And I'll let Michelle talk about it. So our third lesson centers on bringing an inclusion lens to knowledge management efforts overall, um, with the ultimate goal of increasing reach, accessibility, and usability. So prioritizing inclusion from the outset. And this was really interesting to look into and read about and see that while inclusive knowledge management as a field of study is quite new in some ways, it's gaining a lot of traction. For example, the draft USAID policy for knowledge management and organizational learning calls this out specifically with some lessons learned and best practices. And a few recent reports have started to really surface inclusive knowledge management as critical to knowledge management overall. So it was really exciting to learn a bit more about that and the potential there. And in considering what that meant for our research and the learnings that we want, did want to share out, a few specific lessons came to mind. So we could have diversified this technical advisory committee more than we were able to do during the research, for example, in terms of geography, type of organization, and other factors. And just bringing in those additional voices likely would have helped us consider how we were designing the research, how we were sharing it out, and just helped us reach a broader audience. Similarly, more intentionally identifying champions or influencers, again, bringing in that inclusion lens. So this ties back to that lesson that Laura was mentioning and just being a bit more intentional in who we are bringing in to these efforts, again, from the beginning. And lastly, we read some really interesting research on how to incorporate universal design principles. So bringing some of that guidance to dissemination efforts by, for example, thinking through types of modalities, making products more accessible in terms of design and language, and being sure to, of course, resource that appropriately. So how are you using what you learned? How are you taking all of these lessons learned and moving them forward now? So I can certainly say that as an individual day to day, I have found myself thinking a lot more about inclusive knowledge management and 
how as a development practitioner who's both contributing to this creation of knowledge and consuming it, how I can be a little bit more intentional in how I operate. So for example, what does that mean day to day? We all know there's a lot of pressure within our sector to produce and create, and that's probably not going to change anytime soon. But I think we can all take a pause, particularly at the start of a project or research effort, and consider a few things that tie back to some of these lessons we've learned. So that starts with first asking and honestly reflecting on whether a new document or tool is really needed and why. Do we actually have something new to contribute? If this is an ask from someone else, is there room to propose alternatives or negotiate a bit? Does this make sense with the resources we have? And do we have the resources to do it well, including some of those lessons around knowledge brokers and champions and inclusivity? And then what's the end goal? So going back to our example, perhaps if we had been more clear from the beginning on our goal of influencing the conversation around back to work, we could have, for example, provided guiding questions along with disseminating our findings to encourage those sorts of conversations that we were imagining. I think another effort I am making is to take the time to do my due diligence and understand what's out there and encourage that with teams or colleagues. So I find that I am very aware of two kinds of resources, newly released big reports, kind of of the sort we were talking about earlier, that initial attention around webinars and launch events, and then resources that have sort of become canon for us. So one I always think of is the CARE Rapid Gender Analysis tool, you know, very has become very standard for a lot of us with that focus. But I know there are there's a ton out there. And so if I am going down the path of creating something new or myself or with a team, I want to make sure to understand the full landscape, including resources that have received less attention, which as a side note, also presents a really interesting opportunity to bring in resources from smaller or local organizations and elevate them a bit. And then lastly, I think we can all often take a bit more time to talk to our end users and ground these efforts in that reality, kind of a co-creation process, perhaps not always full co-creation, but seeking this input meaningfully and from the beginning can often put the brakes on that, oh, we'll just write it up in a report reaction that so many of us default to. And I should say that I'm also following the example of a lot of colleagues and others in this space. um, And I have seen a lot of these points being made more and more. And just raising these questions helps bring that sort of like mindset shift on the teams that you're in. Yeah. And speaking on the mindset shift, this whole exercise for me also was an opportunity to pause and reflect taking the time to really understand the latest trends and thinking around knowledge management and what knowledge managers. And I think we learned that in the environmental literature, they're called boundary spanners, a term that I really like. And, And this really helped me with having a cognitive framework on how I can be more thoughtful in my day to day work as well. At the Canopy Lab, as consultants, we're often contracted with this assumption that we're going to be bringing in unique insights into an existing program 
or technical area. And so you implicitly or sometimes explicitly have this pressure to innovate. And I think I am learning to be more intentional about playing a knowledge broker role, even in my consulting work, as opposed to feeling like I need to be a knowledge creator. Now, as Michelle said, there's already a wealth of information, data, stories, experiences out there. And I'm learning that there is space and opportunity to curate, to synthesize and, and connect the different elements out there and do it as inclusively as I can. And perhaps that's where innovation is, not in reinventing the wheel, but navigating and enhancing the existing landscape through better connections and amplifying voices that are not as often heard. That's something we talk about at CARE. We have something called the KM rules that were actually crowdsourced from a bunch of knowledge managers inside the organization. And one of my favorite ones is this is a conversation, not a monologue. And it's really that shift from being a knowledge producer. And your job is to just say all the things and to be the smartest person in the room who has invented all the things and knows all the things to at least half of your job is listening to the other people in the space and widening the space who are people who should be there but aren't right now. Um, and that idea of shifting from monologue to conversation feels like a lot of what you're talking about is, you know, being a broker and, and thinking about how to span some of those boundaries. Um, so that's that's really cool. One question I have for you, and I say this as somebody who writes so many reports, so many reports, it's embarrassing to think of. And sometimes people ask me, tell me what impact that happened. I had a conversation with somebody last year and she said, well, did we end COVID? And I said, no. And she said, well, so what was the point of all of those reports that you wrote? And it was the sort of like, we set the bar in the wrong place. A single report is not going to end COVID. However many millions of pages got written about COVID were not enough. How do we think about our work as contributions to an end goal in the same way that a single report from you all wasn't going to revolutionize return to work, right? That's, that is setting the bar kind of in the wrong spot for expectations. How do we think about building that momentum or building that long-term as a community and as many contributors to a conversation, as opposed to sort of continuing to sell the myth that my one report is the reason we solved COVID or didn't. My failure at a report is the reason we didn't solve COVID. That is a very, very good question. And I don't think I have the wisdom to answer that. Though perhaps it just will help for us to think about all our efforts more systemically. Now, of course, it's easier to stay, and then I still struggle on how to translate that. All of us are knowledge creators, users, and brokers. We do not operate, you know, in distinct universes. And so I think the more we can view ourselves as part of this dynamic network of individuals and organizations and take the ego out and look more towards contributing to the whole, I think would really benefit all of us. Now, there are reporting requirements, there are outputs and, and things like this to track that don't really serve that purpose. But I do think the conversation is headed that way. And I do hope that the monitoring or the measurement systems that accompany those conversations and those trends can be a bit more flexible. I think we are very much conditioned to write in a report or to tell a donor. I think our goals are quite lofty, but 
they can remain lofty, but I think we can be kinder to ourselves in terms of how we aim to contribute to that mission without bending over backwards, trying to stake a claim. I'll to add to that, Laura, and thanks for asking that question, Emily. I think this mindset shift that we're all speaking about and Emily, you talk about it, care, you know, shifting from being the expert in the room to listening, that really can go a long way. And if we are all coming from a perspective of what are the actual knowledge gaps that are out there? And when we are conducting research or writing reports, including that in our own products, because this is such an interconnected ecosystem of research and operators and implementers. And we know that all of these efforts are going to continue to happen in this layered way. So thinking about how to set up my peers for whatever piece comes next, I think is a really kind of productive and collaborative way to think about it that can help us all move towards more effective and specific and productive products. Because again, as we've all acknowledged, that that pressure to create and produce is not going anywhere. And there is a lot that we don't know. And it's worthwhile to continue these efforts. And we acknowledge that it is a competitive landscape. You know, global development is an industry. There are disincentives from sharing sort of on a competitive basis. But I think one of the things that I do really like about working in development is that there really is a sense of a community and a desire to share and learn from one another, despite that competition. And being able to harness that would be fantastic. I know it's happening. There, there's a lot out there. But I think pushing that even more and really bringing in that inclusion lens that Michelle talked about, I think can really take us to higher levels. And perhaps it's as easy as acknowledging the existing body of work in any document that you produce, right? Like beyond the stats of a particular context, documenting what other work has been done, perhaps by competitors or other actors, might set a nice precedent. It's something I wrestle with all the time and had a conversation with someone recently about that idea of not invented here. And, and you're disincentivized from using something that a quote unquote competitor created you're often incentivized to duplicate it with just a tiny little bit of difference so that it's yours. And for all of the things that are wrong with that, for me, the one that is most upsetting is the number of humans who do not have time to give us whose time we waste in that kind of an exercise. Let's do one more market analysis. Let's do one more market gender assessment. Let's do one more insert research study here that's very similar to that woman in Ethiopia has answered this question 700 times, or if she hasn't, her neighbor has, and maybe that's enough, because frankly, we should never be taxing their time. It's just not fair. How do we get smarter at that as a sector? I think it's not for the lack of trying. I think all of us acknowledge that there are gaps, that there are shortcomings, that we need to coordinate better. I think there are mechanisms set up precisely to address these things. But as someone who is not a, a knowledge management professional, it'd be, it'd be great to turn the tables on you and ask you how, how to do it right, because I would love to continue doing that in my line of work. I, 
I don't know that I have a whole answer. I can tell you one of the things that has made a huge difference for me is starting from the question of who else have you asked? Where else have you looked? And so anytime somebody comes in and says, we want to do a new assessment, say, what is already out there? And what would we be adding that's not there already? Let me Google that for you <laughs> as a reflex is a, is often an important place to start because we kind of have these predetermined patterns of here are the research questions you embark on that we may not need to, um, or we may not be adding as much value as we are taking away time from people who shouldn't have to give it to us. Michelle, what would you say? Well, I was just thinking about what that surfaces for me is just trying to shift our default a little bit. And I hear in this conversation, none of us are saying there's no new research needed in development. The, you know, we all see a lot of interesting potential and so many things we don't know. But I think that kind of, you know, agreeing to start from a different default could make a big difference. At the same time, I know that this can run up against internal or external requirements. And I think there's really some interesting conversations to be had, again, organizationally or with donors, for example. Are there exceptions that can be made to these requirements that are in place for a very good reason? It's excellent that gender analyses are required for new programs. And I think something a lot of us pushed for for a long time. But is there room in certain instances to ask for an exception or to tweak the requirements for an analysis like that. And I think if we can all get in the habit of asking those questions and having those conversations, it would push us all forward together in a really great way. And I wonder what both your experience has been in being able to obtain some of the research instruments or raw data that some places have been very forthcoming in being able to just share that information. And I've appreciated that when they're like, all right, we did the study and these were the interview guides. These are the questions we've asked. This was the survey questionnaire that we used. And they get very, very detailed to allow you to be able to extract perhaps what you need. They're willing to share data sets with you. I don't often see that happening in development as much as I think everyone would appreciate. And I'm sure it's because of a whole host of reasons, you know, as you said, Michelle, internal, external, proprietary issues and, and whatnot. But I think Emily, what you said about the person who's responding is still a human being at the very end of the day, and how many knocks on the door and how many calls on the mobile phone could this person possibly be asked to respond to on a continuous basis? And I think oftentimes we get lost behind the questions and the interview guides and the methodology and forget that there are actual people whose time we also don't want to waste. It's not only about our time, it's also about their time. And so, yeah, I, I think there's definitely ways forward. I just hope we can figure out the right path there. Laura, I have actually found that when I have remembered to ask or taken the time to ask, kind of like colleague to colleague or peer to peer, people are very willing to share, you know, within some constraints like removing personally identifying information and, of course, all of those concerns. But Again, that kind of peer-to-peer -peer ask, I find typically people are very responsive to, um, and it just takes me or someone else, again, like remembering to do it or stepping out of the 
day-to-day rush in which a lot of this is typically happening and I'm just going through the steps I know. And so I'm meeting with the Mel team to develop the tools and we're testing the tools, taking a minute to step out of that and say, oh, wait, I know someone on a program and just reaching out. I have found that to be really, really effective. People are willing to share. And even if it's not, here's the full data set, here's the assessment, it often can lead to a conversation that helps nuance what I'm doing and ends up making it more effective. And to the point that you and Emily are both raising, more respectful of the people whom we are interviewing or sending a survey to. Um, So I think it's a really, what you raise is a really good reminder for us all. Emily, I'm curious what you've seen with those asks or efforts. I've always been very pleasantly surprised. Uh, People are excited when you say, I read something you did and it resonated for me, or I've been paying attention to what you're working on. I'd love to learn more. When you can be genuine about it, people usually want to share. And sometimes there's certainly data privacy and do no harm that we all know we need to respect and want to respect. Sometimes there are proprietary things about what people can and cannot share, and that's completely fair. But as you say, Michelle, being able to have that conversation and shaping, one thing I've found is really powerful to ask is, what do you wish you could have answered and you couldn't? What do you wish you could say an argument you wish you could make that you don't have yet? Because that allows us then to focus in on instead of replicating on adding value. And to circle it back to your original point about this kind of change takes momentum. It's not what is your dissemination plan in the first two weeks after the report is published. Changes like this take months and years. And as you said, a report doesn't always have a lifespan of that many years, depending on what it is. So if we can collectively think about building momentum from each other, instead of that one report is going to cover it all, that's where, for me, that's where a lot of the fun comes in. That's what makes it really promising and energizing to do this work at all. Yeah, no, that's really promising. I, and you, you know, Michelle working for Mercy Corps and Emily with CARE, you work for these very large organizations with a global presence. I do find it a bit different working for a consulting firm where the information that we have is not ours. Mm. And so, you know, we're very client facing, but I also find it that we are in a unique position because we work with such a variety of different clients on the full spectrum to really be able to be that connection between different kinds of organizations. And yet, in my experience, I have felt restricted in being able to share just because of by virtue of the contracts that we sign. And, but maybe that can change. Yeah, it's an interesting question because I do work for a different kind of organization, right, in the way we're set up. And, and CARE specifically has a lot of policies in place to push us towards as much transparency as is safe and respectful for the people we work for. So certainly we wouldn't release anything if we thought there was do no harm attached to it, you know, if, the, if there was a risk there, but, but we really do explicitly push to put out as many of your interview guides as you can, put them on the back of every report, publish the report as much as you can, right? We, we default in that direction. And so it is interesting to think about how different organizational structures are there and how we can work together around some of those. Is there anything you want to share with the audience that I didn't give you space to say? I think we covered a lot and thanks for all the great questions. One thing I think is important to put out there with this conversation and everything we've learned is just how much time and resources what we're talking about takes and that what we're a lot of what we're describing is best case ideal scenario no time constraints all the resourcing you could want a team of 15 on one project and so i don't think we're suggesting that every research effort can look this way 
but more that there are kind of lessons to borrow and adapt to your particular team or research piece? I mean, my takeaway from this whole exercise and our conversation today is we need more knowledge brokering. We need more knowledge management. And as Michelle said, this does require resources that might not necessarily be the most tangible use of money that many funders or donors might see, but how crucial it really is, particularly in our day and age where we live in a world of so much abundance when it comes to data and knowledge. And so our goal now is a shift in the default setting to let's take what is already out here. How can we make the best use out of it instead of adding more to the crowd. So more power to knowledge management. That's been that's been my lesson learned. I feel like I need to say I didn't actually pay either of you to say those things <laughs> just because I have knowledge management in my job title doesn't mean that that was a plant. Although it's it's really interesting to hear some of those takeaways. And I, and I will say I refer to our KM rules. One of them is produce yet less, use it more, right? That idea of sliding yourself down the spectrum of are we applying it? Are we using it? Are we learning from it? Any last thoughts or words of wisdom you want to share today? I think the wisest thing that I can say now is that I am committed to listening more, producing less, listening more, and being a conduit as much as possible. So I don't know if those are pearls of wisdom as much as it is something that I will commit myself to moving forward. And in that spirit, I will reuse those points and echo those sentiments. And thank you so much, Emily, for the conversation today. Thanks, Michelle and Laura. Really lovely to have you join us. Exciting to hear about your experiences and your lesson learned. And I love doing these podcasts because I always learn a lot from the folks on the other end. So huge thanks for your time. To the audience, thanks for listening today. We're really excited to have you. If you have any thoughts or suggestions or you want to propose a podcast yourself, please get in touch and stay tuned next time.